Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jared Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal. Today, we're going to talk to former independent counsel Ken Starr. He has a book out, Contempt. It revisits the Clinton era. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the parallels of that era in the 1990s, uh, Clinton investigations with today and the special counsel investigation into President Trump. We're also going to talk about a young lawyer who worked for the independent counsel's office back in the 90s. That lawyer's name was Brett Kavanaugh. Today, it's Justice Kavanaugh. I I recommend to the listener as well, we do have a previous show about the distinction between special counsels and independent counsels, which is, is good to reiterate because it is a little confusing as you kind of listen through the debates today about the Mueller investigation, what exactly this this office is. And Fred, I think it's interesting that we have kind of a reversal of roles going on, certainly mm-hmm. with now the Trump presidency as a Republican, the Clinton presidency was a Democrat. But, you know, of course, there were a lot of big issues at stake in that whole thing. And it is interesting to see all this these debates, especially when, in terms of the Me Too movement in the Clinton era, well, you know, how that's kind of evolved today and, you know, how that's different. Well, I, yeah, and I, and I think uh, people are taking a totally different look at the Clinton era. I mean, people like Ezra Klein, uh, Rachel Maddow have like said over the last year that Clinton should have resigned over the Monica situation, and uh, and I think that with the um, the abuse of power, I guess with the Monica situation, even though it was the the line from Democrats back in the nineties is it was consensual, but of course it was not an equal footing. He was the president; she was an intern, a subordinate situation. Uh, and, of course, then the much worse situations you had, Juanita Broderick, Kathleen Willey, Paula Jones, uh, it's not – I mean, it seems hard to imagine Bill Clinton would have survived uh, as in the Me Too era. I mean, somebody could ask would he get win a second term in the Me Too era. It's hard to say whether he'd have a second year in the Me Too era, right? I mean – Absolutely. Well, hey, let's let's take a listen now. We, we we had a chance to talk to to Ken Starr, as we said, who was kind of at the eye of the storm of these most intense political debates. I remember growing up, uh, hearing about this star was, uh, you know, he was really attacked in the media and whatnot. But he really was at the center of all these these different debates, especially about well, the Clinton presidency. Yeah, yeah, and then that's something we're going to talk to him about um, because some. The, the attacks against uh, Ken Starr, uh, a lot of the same language is being used by the Trump administration against Robert Mueller today. We are now joined by Ken Starr, a United States Circuit Judge, a U.S. Solicitor General under President George H.W. Bush, an independent counsel of the Whitewater scandal that led to President Bill Clinton's impeachment by the House of Representatives. He is the author of the recently released book, Contempt, a Memoir of the Clinton Investigation. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Jared. Thank you. So I think we'll just jump right into it here. You held the job of independent counsel uh, during this whole White Waller scandal in 1998. We, of course, have the current events tie-in. We have Robert Mueller, who has this what's called special counsel today for the Russia investigation. Can you explain to us what on earth the difference is between (laughs) these two offices? They're very significant differences. Uh, And so here, here it goes. Uh, Historically, beginning in the Grant administration, 
when issues would involve executive branch wrongdoing, including the president, uh, the Department of Justice or the president himself would reach out and ask someone to serve as a special prosecutor. Now let's jump forward to Watergate and the Nixon years. Uh, Archibald Cox, who led us into the Saturday Night Massacre, was a special prosecutor. He was fired. Robert Bork then appointed as the acting uh, attorney general, the new uh, uh, special prosecutor, Leon Chaworski. The rest is all history. Now, part of the history that then unfolded brings us to the independent counsel. With that background of a century plus of special prosecutors, the Congress in 1978 passed a law that, as part of the law, included the special prosecutor provisions of a larger act called the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. So special prosecutors became statutory. Then five years later, the special prosecutors had a new name, Independent Counsel. We had that regime for 21 years. Then that regime passed by Congress went away, and there was a restoration in effect of the good old days, the traditional methodology of the attorney general or the president saying, we want someone from the outside. Instead of calling them a special prosecutor, we have the kinder and gentler term special counsel. Now, here is, with all that, here's the key difference. The independent counsel and the statute in which I was appointed was appointed by a three-judge court. The special counsel and historically the special prosecutors were appointed by the president or by the attorney general. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I think that that brings up the question. I think it's it's one that is now, and I think you did at the time. Is this a is this a constitutional office? I mean, is this something that is within the scope of the Constitution. I mean, I mean, we don't hear about this at the Constitutional Convention, the debates there. We don't hear about this office. I mean, the, <laughs> right. obviously it was kind of created during the Whiskey Ring scandal, I believe, under the Grant administration. So it's kind exactly. of held a special place, but it's in this kind of gray area, wouldn't you say? It's a very important question because of the importance uh, and the foundational value of separation of powers. Uh, the founding generation believed that separation of powers and federalism were the two great architectural protections of American li liberty. I believe this current mechanism of the special counsel is entirely constitutional because the special counsel is simply another officer within the executive branch who reports to the Attorney General of the United States. So in the discretionary operations of the Justice Department, the executive branch, the Attorney General has these regulations under which the Attorney General or the acting Attorney General in this uh, instance uh, then appoints in his or her own discretion a special counsel to achieve these values of independence of day-to-day -day operation. However, I did believe, going back to the statute passed by Congress, that those independent counsel provisions were unconstitutional for a variety of reasons, including the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that the appointment power was stripped from the executive branch and deposited in and invested in the judicial branch. To some people, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. 
because in our system of separated powers, the executive branch function needs to be carried out by the executive branch, including the authority and discretion as to who to appoint. However, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld its constitutional uh, its constitutionality in a uh, overwhelming seven to one, Justice Kennedy not participating decision in the case in the 1980s called Morrison versus Olson. But that solitary dissent in that seven to one decision was authored by Antonin Scalia, which he viewed, even though he had only been on the court for one year or two years at that time, was truly, as he looked back on his remarkable body of work um, after almost 30 years on the bench, that that was his finest hour, his finest opinion. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, sir, I um, uh, don't want to let the interview uh, time pass by without asking about a uh, young lawyer on your uh, on the independent counsel's team, Brett Kavanaugh, and uh, get your thoughts about his recent confirmation to the Supreme Court. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> what a great man and what a lousy process. Uh, <laughs> So, Fred, I would say this. As I recount in the book, uh, Brett was at my right hand. Uh, He was uh, with me for about four years during the long investigation. Uh, And what you see now is a older version, a middle-aged version of the young Brett Kavanaugh, a brilliant, kind, compassionate, for all of his brilliance, he was so humble. He was very easy for everyone to deal with. He's sort of wildly popular with everyone because of his very great uh, and gracious uh, personality. So what we have now seen, and finally he is on the court after this terrible ordeal for which the President of the United States apologized on behalf of the, of the nation. And I think an apology was in order because the process uh, descended into just the depths of horror, uh, of, of mistreatment, uh, of the, the, the mob rule that John Cornyn, Senator John Cornyn from my state of Texas, signaled during the original set of confirmation uh, hearings, uh, the disruption during the confirmation hearings, and then, of course, uh, the nadir of the entire process was the allegations that had been before Senator Dianne Feinstein for some six weeks before she saw fit at the 11th hour to bring them forward. That entire process, I think, was, uh, I would just say this, it was a violation of the spirit of due process. Mm -hmm. The Senate is not bound by due process. They do not have the power to take away human liberty, so, or to deprive one of property. But I think the Senate uh, Democrats behaved in an extraordinarily shameful way, and they should be ashamed, but of course they feel emboldened and empowered. Uh, I wish there were uh, a voice, and I wish we'd heard more from Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the sole Democrat to vote in favor of uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh. Pa- fi- final point on this. It wasn't so long ago that... Republicans, at least, would set aside their own philosophy and uh, accept uh, in sorrow the fact that elections have consequences. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg received over 90 votes. You might say, well, that was ancient history. No, that was after uh, both uh, Robert Bork uh, and Clarence Thomas. So I think a fair-minded historian would look at this and say, 
it's really the Democratic side of the aisle that needs to look itself in the eye and, and in the mirror and say, is, is this the kind of shabby treatment we want to afford human beings who have very distinguished records? Bork, Thomas, and now Kavanaugh. But uh, I, I'm an optimist. I hope for the best, but I expect the worst. During that uh, testimony, he talked about the star team. Everyone on there was opposition re- researched from head to toe. Is, is that how you recall Absolutely. We were a great team. And uh, uh, Brett is, uh, is so befitting a, a very fine basketball player. He even played uh, for one year at Yale. He's a very accomplished uh, uh, athlete. Uh, now he's Coach K to his kids, right? <laughs> and he, he's a team guy. Let's work together. Uh, basketball is a team sport. And a collegial court of appeals in which he served with such great distinction, the D.C. Circuit, is a collegial court. That is, you're in conversation with your judges, your fellow judges and so forth to try to get the right answer. And not atypically, there is certainly as then <laughs> Judge Kavanaugh in the uh, – uh, a very important Harvard Law Review piece, which did not get much uh, attention during the confirmation process, said there's usually a better answer, right? Mm-hmm. People could say, is it the right answer or the wrong answer? There's probably, in most judicial decision-making, a better answer. Mm-hmm. That's what he's going to be searching for with his colleagues. So, so changing topics a little bit, we'd, we'd like to get to to your book, of course, which is called Contempt, a Memoir of the Clinton Investigation, now, this book is written in 2018. It's been a while since this whole investigation happened. Uh, wh- why now? Why 2018? Why come out with this book uh, 20 years later? Well, the 20th anniversary was coming up, and I decided that it really was now or never. My personal circumstances were such that I had greater freedom. I enjoy writing. It had been some years since I'd written my book on the Supreme Court. I've had uh, the blessings of a very rich professional life, including in the academy and law practice and so forth. And then Hillary lost the election. <laughs> and so the Clinton era seemed to pass. And I was, as I was completing a book, as I did uh, early the following year of 2017, on my Baylor experience and my uh, tribute to Baylor University, where I was privileged to serve as president and chancellor, my view was now or never. And so I decided this needs to be said because there's so many stories that need to be told, including the fact that uh, we seriously considered presenting to the Little Rock Grand Jury the indictment of Hillary Rodham Clinton for her wrongdoing as we saw it in Little Rock. And and, and that was um, – one thing I did want to ask you about is uh, during that investigation, um, I can recall – you had people like James Carville out using the terms uh, witch hunt, uh, you know, said it's taking too long uh, and that you, you've you gone outside the, nas- the uh, mandate of the prosecution. Um, we are today hearing a lot of the same criticisms from President Trump and President Trump's allies towards uh, Robert Mueller. And I wanted to just get your take on that. Uh, do you feel some sympathy for Mueller in, in that sense or yeah. can kind of see you know, Fred, a comparison here? Uh, uh, Fred, I do. Uh, and uh, there are uh, odd, almost eerie echoes when you read my book and then you say, that's happening right now. <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, some months ago, uh, President Trump's uh, team anonymously said, we're just drawing a play from the playbook of the Clinton White House 
attack the prosecutor and and, and uh, the like. There's a huge difference, though. From everything I have seen, the Trump team has been cooperating with right. the investigation, even while the president tweets and is operating on a political level. The lawyers have been working fairly harmoniously. So lots of name calling <laughs> directed at Bob mm-hmm. Mueller and the team. And I've expressed concern about some of the folks around Bob Mueller, but I have confidence in Bob Mueller as a person of integrity, as a patriot. He's Semper Fi, Semper Fi Marine. Uh, but there are a lot of parallels, I think. Uh, but here is now, t- to me, the very key difference. Throughout the investigation, the Clinton team sought to obstruct. They would say, we're cooperating, we're cooperating. And in the meantime, in various and sundry ways throughout the investigation, there was a lack of cooperation than most dramatically. During the Lewinsky phase of the um, investigation, there was an effort to destroy the investigation. Now, here is, I think, a very important point that was just lost on the American people 20 years ago. Attorney General Janet Reno personally authorized that investigation based upon her review and that of professional prosecutors around her of the uh, facts that and the sorry truth that Monica Lewinsky had committed perjury and was encouraging others to and that the president intended to commit perjury. Uh, And that whole series of crimes against the rule of law were viewed rightly by Attorney General Reno, who obviously Bill Clinton had appointed as serious enough to warrant an independent uh, counsel investigation. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Right Side of History. really appreciate your insight into a really dramatic moment in American history and these very complex, confusing offices that mm-hmm. I think uh, you've definitely enlightened our audience, so we very much appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Fred. Thanks. Thanks to everyone for joining us on The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you are further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter, at FredLucasWH. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.